This is the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. Andy Payton is the lead pastor at Methodist Temple United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana. Randy Moore is associate pastor at Methodist Temple. Their goal is to see Christ in everything and everyone. Hello, everybody. I'm Randy along with Andy, and we hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Yes, I hope everyone uh, enjoyed uh, the time away with their family. And I know, Randy, you've been away, and it's good to have you back as well. Yeah, I took some time off to visit one of my children, uh, actually two of my children. Uh, My one daughter lives in Los Angeles, and uh, my other daughter uh, lives on the East Coast. And so we all met out there. It was a a really good, really, really good time. So we transitioned from Thanksgiving right into Advent, a brand new season. And as you mentioned, Sunday, I was away, but I caught uh, some of the sermon, some of the service that um, it's a happy new year for the church, really. Yes. Uh, last Sunday was the what we call Reign of Christ Sunday. It marks the end of the Christian year. So the Christian calendar is a little bit different than our secular calendar. And uh, so last week was Reign of Christ, where we remember that in the end, God's love wins. That's how I would explain it. And so now we begin again as we move into the month of December and move closer towards the gift of Christmas. We we start again with the birth of Jesus and really the appearing. I like I like the language of the appearing of Christ. Yeah, and uh, usually we can just you know dive right into the Advent season, but your sermon series sort of collides with that a little bit. Not that it can't be managed, but we would be talking about you know a lot more probably about Advent um, during our podcast and during your sermon series. But you are seventeen articles into the twenty-five articles of religion. You made it work. Uh, last week was baptism. We're going to talk about that, and next week is um, the uh, the Lord's Supper. This coming week is. And so uh, baptism marks a beginning, like a beginning of a new year. Yes, uh, it's, it marks the beginning of the Christian year. I mean, sorry, it marks the beginning of the Christian journey. And it kind of fit how we did uh, baptism on the Reign of Christ Sunday because um, it, it kind of marks the beginning of the Christian New Year as well. And then next week, it's kind of interesting because next week it, we're going to be talking about this coming Sunday, rather, uh, Holy Communion. It happens to also be a Communion Sunday, too. And so... It comes together. Maybe, Randy, we're being guided by a a source greater than our own. Who knows? Could be. Uh, We'd like to begin, before we dive deep into this, uh, with a little checkup of our the condition of our souls and what it is that makes our souls prosper. And uh, you already mentioned it, but I've had some some time off. There was some cross-country travel, which can be exhausting, but I found it. The the travel went well. Um, I will say this. Getting from LAX uh, to my daughter's house uh, took a while, and we found out that evening that it was a record day for traffic in Los Angeles. Now, a record day for traffic in Los Angeles, you're talking about some serious traffic there. So, but you know, it's, it's uh, no Lloyd Expressway, <laughs> I'm assuming. <laughs> no, not at all. Now, I wasn't driving, so I, you know, I, well, I just kind of figured, well, all right, just it's kind of a it. slow motion, you know. You're in Thanksgiving trip. mode. That's right. That's right. <laughs> But it was good. Um, of course, it, it's good anytime I can be with my children because they're spread out. And two of our six grandchildren were there. Those are the two on my side of the family. And so, yeah, not to be with them is, is good for, for my soul. Yes. Uh, 
I'm curious, Randy, what's your favorite Thanksgiving food? As you were talking, I'm like, what do the folks in California and Los Angeles eat for Thanksgiving? Well, it is interesting because we had to go out and get a turkey breast and some ham. We didn't have to, but that that's Thanksgiving for us. But my daughter is a vegetarian and her husband is a vegan. And so they don't eat like we eat typically, but they but they're really nice about accommodating sure. us Hoosiers and, and, and Midwesterners. So I love the, the uh, traditional Thanksgiving. Now, turkey is not my favorite thing, but I'm a dark meat guy. Um, but I love the dressing and I just the, the uh, sweet potato casserole. I just love everything about it. Yeah, it's a. Uh... The tradition of it all, it's it's fun. And we went to my mom's house on Thursday and we went to Leslie's folks on, on Friday. So my mom lives in Mooresville. Leslie's family lives in Nashville, Indiana. We had a great time and did similar stuff. But uh, on Friday, we went into Nashville and it was it was like a Hallmark kind of community. <laughs> it was it was great. Um, we went and look, saw some Christmas lights with the girls. And this one place we stopped, there was even the Grinch that appeared and the young children that we were with that were they were enamored with it and so we had a great time as well well good okay so let's talk about last uh, week's sermon that's what we do here on the podcast um we're both pastors at methodist temple in in evansville and um so what we like to do is we take last week's service and we dig deeper into that and in a way to help it stick with us because as we've noted before lots of times we can you know hear a sermon and it's sort of in one ear and out the other if we don't pause to really reflect on that and that's really what we do and then we do some preparation for what's coming up next week um, next Sunday. And we do like to make the point that we don't think that you have to have heard this sermon to get something out of the podcast. Um, we think that there's good information that we have to share as we dig a little bit deeper. So as I mentioned before, uh, Pastor Andy is in the sermon series on the 25 articles of religion for the Methodists. And we're up to article 17. Last week was um, the sacraments. And then these next two articles um, break those down to the two sacraments in the, in the Protestant tradition. So article 17 is about baptism. And here's the description of it in the articles themselves. Baptism is not only a sign of profession and mark of difference whereby Christians are distinguished from others that are not baptized, but it is also a sign of regeneration or the new birth. The baptism of young children is to be retained in the church. And I thought, Andy, that this last line was a really interesting one because a lot of these articles we find, because they are essentially, they have their basis in uh, Reformation uh, thinking and, and they're essentially Reformation documents. And so a lot of times they run head head on into um, Catholicism. It, but this one uh, says, hey, the baptism of young children is to be retained in the church, whereas you might think that it would say uh, baptism of young children is uh, not to be accepted in the Protestant church. It's a baptism of, of believers. So this sort of gets to that via media of the Church of England and of Methodism, where it's kind of a middle way between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Yeah, that's a, it is a very interesting line. And you're right. Um, it's kind of surprising that they kept it. But that's one of the beautiful things about the tradition that we're a part of is like we're able to keep some of the things that we appreciated 
and found God's presence at work. And, and, and I'm convinced that God's presence does work in the baptism of young children. And it's certainly God's presence works, regardless if a child's been baptized or not. God's presence definitely works through a community of faith. If you raise a child in the midst of a community of faith where the spiritual values of like love and joy and kindness, what we would call fruits of the spirit, are the values of that community, can have a tremendous impact on the well-being of a child long term. And so I find this article affirming some of the things we can affirm now, even from a, a psychological and a scientific perspective. Yeah. I love the communal nature of baptism and a lot of things that we're talking about through these uh, 25 articles, because sometimes it can be like, what do I need to do to get myself saved? And if there's a real individual approach, whereas baptism is, it, it, that's a church event. I, I do know that, uh, and I've shared this story that a couple, that a couple of, on a couple of occasions, I was asked in my previous appointment, to do baptism by immersion. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, one young man was a teenager, and then one little girl was, oh, she was probably um, 10 or 11. And their parents and they just, you know, they just wanted uh, them to be baptized by immersion. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Methodists baptize by immersion as well. I mean, we typically baptize infants, but we also baptize by immersion. And so I told the congregation, I said, we're going to have to go down to the General Baptist Church where they have a baptistry to do this. And baptism is a church thing. This isn't them going off to be baptized. This is a church thing, a church event. So you were invited to come down. And I, I shouldn't say I was surprised, but I was pleasantly surprised that most of our people went down there for mm -hmm. that baptism because it's not just an individual thing. It's a community thing. Yeah. The, if you look at the liturgy that we typically would use at one point in the service of baptism, we turn to the, the community of believers and ask them some questions. Basically, do they um, affirm their faith and do they commit themselves to living in such a way that this person about to be baptized is raised in a community of faith. Um, one way to think about it is you've heard the adage, it takes a village to raise a child, but really in the person's baptism, it, 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 ra it raises a community up. It raises the whole community up and reminds us all um, that if we're going to take our faith seriously, we have to take it communally as well. Mm -hmm. You started with a couple of definitions. The traditional definition of baptism would be that it is a, it is a sacrament, one of two in, in our tradition, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist is the other one. But you said that uh, the traditional definition would be that baptism as a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. And then there was what you call the Andy uh, definition, and, and that is that uh, the sacrament is used to to um, communicate spiritual things through creative things and that it, it, the sacraments help us to overcome boredom where our stories intersect with God's story. Mm -hmm. I might have butchered that, but those are my notes. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. You took good notes, Randy. <laughs> no, I, I'm always trying to find a way to kind of help it connect to a modern worldview where people can understand it. And the uh, traditional definition of a sacrament, it's kind of lofty and it's <laughs> churchy language. Um, in short, what the sacraments are supposed to do is stir within us a sense of God's presence. Um, and they're, they're outward signs of an invisible grace. They are meant to stir within us a sense of God's presence. Well, what does that mean for us in a modern context? Well, I think a way to think about it would be we realize that our life is connected to a 
a bigger story. Our story is connected to a greater life. And, and so as we submit ourselves to being baptized or we go forward to celebrate communion, essentially what we're doing is saying, hey, I want to, I want to become alive and aware and live my life in a relationship um, with the divine presence. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to press you on this a little bit. You, this notion about uh, a sacrament helps us overcome boredom. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm glad you reminded me of that. So I just find that a helpful way to think about life in the modern context. When we were children, we said we were bored when we had played with our toys, we're tired of our toys, and our friends were not able to come over and play. So we said we're bored because we had nothing to do. The modern dilemma is not that we have nothing to do. It's instead that we have everything in the world to do. Our calendars are full. We have opportunity to the max. We can go to different places, do different things constantly. And even if we don't want to, our media and our technology puts it up in front of our face on a just a constant basis. And so if we're not careful, what happens, though, is in this saturation of possibilities, we start to think to ourselves, does any of this really even matter? And that's what I would describe as spiritual boredom. We have our lives all filled up to the point now where we think, does my life even matter? And what the sacraments do is they kind of like, they're meant to shake us a little bit and wake us up and say, hey, yeah, your life, it matters. It's got sacred value. You're a part of something bigger. You're, you're part of some, a bigger story. And, and your decisions, well, they have impact and they make a difference. All these kinds of things are meant to happen um, when we engage in what we call these means of grace, these sacraments of the church. All right, and you broke it down into three areas. You said, let's see what the Bible has to say about baptism, what the tradition says about baptism, and then how that affects our lives today. And so water is that that created symbol, that ordinary thing that says so much in the Bible. Yeah, um, well, if you look at the whole scope of Scripture, both the Hebrew Bible and the Christian New Testament, water in many ways it does tell the story of God, what God's up to, what God's doing in the world today. Um, You go back to Genesis. I mentioned Genesis. In the beginning, God's spirit hovers over waters of creation. And then if you move forward in Genesis a little farther, um, you get the story of the flood and and Noah. And in that sense, I think what you see is water being utilized as as a symbol of God's presence wanting to redeem the world. And then um, when we get into the story of the Exodus, uh, water is, of course, symbolic in the sense that they're crossing from Egypt to the promised land. And it's symbolic of God's presence working to bring them from a place of bondage to freedom. Um, And so it really becomes no surprise that water is utilized to signify important spiritual messages for individual lives as well. Um, You see priest. Uh, in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, um, being washed with water as they're consecrated and set apart to be priests. You see that in the story of Aaron, for example. But you also see, um, as I mentioned in my sermon, water being utilized to talk about a sort of washing and cleansing that God wants to do in all of our lives. And you see this, especially in the prophets, for example, in Isaiah 
Um, the prophet Isaiah in chapter one says, wash yourselves and seek justice, defend the poor, um, defend the orphan, the widow, these kinds of things. And so, um, as I just said, though, water basically conveys what God's up to in the world today. Well, as we pivot to the New Testament um, and we start talking about baptism, we see this especially applying to the ministry of John the Baptist. And, and uh, he's proclaiming uh, his message is a, a proclamation of what he calls repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so water in the John the Baptist message conveys a, a sort of transformation. But then in Jesus's baptism, we even find a different pivot. Um, in Jesus' baptism, of course, the story goes, the heavens kind of split open. Here's the voice of God. Um, there's the voice that says, you're the beloved. And the Spirit descends upon Jesus's life. In Jesus's baptism, what we find is his identity being revealed. And I think that points to what happens in our baptisms as well. Our true identity is revealed as, as God's children. And to live the baptized life in light of the story of Jesus is really about living our lives, again, in intersection with the Spirit of God and the life of God's presence. It's not about and here's, I think, the difference between Jesus and John the Baptist. It's not about measuring up. It's not about pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, that kind of stuff that so often happens with religion and that it can leave us feeling wildly inadequate. What baptism does as we look to the story of Jesus is it, is it invites us uh, to live our lives as sacred beings um, in relationship with the divine presence as Jesus lived Jesus's life. Um, motivated by the, the Spirit of God. As you were talking, it made me think about it. it. Might have been Martin Luther who said, "I, you know, I am baptized." It's not so much about that moment when a person is baptized; it's about the fact that we are mm -hmm. baptized people. And a lot of times we can get hung up, especially uh, with infant baptism, where you can't remember your baptism if you were baptized of, as an infant but you can remember that you're baptized. Mm -hmm. That to me uh, says a lot. Yes, it says, it says what we need to know, really. Um, and I used that Martin Luther story in my second sermon. <laughs> I preached it twice, second okay. time around. I talked about Martin Luther and how when his life got very difficult, especially Luther would do that, um, his life would get very difficult. And he dealt with bouts of what we would call depression. Uh, this great reformer of the church that changed the course of Christianity had his downtimes. Um, in those moments, he would put his hand on his forehead and say, Martin, you're, you're baptized. You're baptized. <laughs> you're baptized, man. And, and notice something that happens in that. And it's not about remembering the event mm -hmm. where you got sprinkled and right. the pastor or the priest said something over your life. It's about remembering who you are. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about um, remembering our bapt baptisms. And certainly we can get into maybe some of the weeds of who can be baptized and why if we want to go there, Randy. But um, at its core, what the ba what baptism is meant to do is, is to kind of wash those labels away and remind us who we truly are and who we truly belong to. Okay, that's what the Bible has to say about baptism. Tradition, you said, can really be divided into three camps, past, present, and future. The past sees uh, baptism as a memorial. The future sees it as some sort of a salvific uh, magic that, that's performed there. And the present sees it as a means of grace. Yes, um, and 
I kind of struggled with how I overly simplified the Christian <laughs> tradition. Um, but when people typically think of baptism in the past, what I'm talking about is like it's a memorial and it's a symbol basically that points to a decision that a person has consciously made. So this is the believer's baptism tradition, basically. And this is what a lot of non-denominational churches practice today. Um, they believe that once a person consciously decides to become a Christian, then they submit themselves to be baptized. And it's really a ritual that signifies to the community, hey, this person has decided to become a follower of Christ. And it initiates them into the membership of the life of the church. And so it really signifies a human choice, a conscious choice. Um, the futuristic one is is about like, it, it kind of points to this idea, like you said, magical, maybe mystical. Um, we believe in, well, I should say some believe in the Christian tradition that in order for a person even to go to heaven, they have to be baptized to get to heaven. So it kind of, instead of the past points to the future. And then, uh, the camp that I would say the United Methodist tradition belongs in would be more like the present. It's a means of grace. And while it certainly connects to the past and the story of God's presence we find in Scripture, and it also points to the future in the Christian liturgy or the Methodist liturgy for a funeral. Um, there's a part where we even read, like, may so-and-so be clothed in glory as they're clothed in their baptism. So it does point to the future. But really for us, it's pointing to the present. It's about a means of grace. It's a a channel through which a sense of God's presence is stirred up within us. I find that a helpful metaphor. Um, so, but it really, I guess, technically, it is a little bit of of it all, a little of all three. But you ended up with the present, which then transitions us to the third area uh, that you built here, and that is how does baptism affect our our lives today. And you said that it uh, it connects us with Scripture, and it tells us that we indeed are chosen. We think mm -hmm. of a chosen people, like that's some sort of a special group set aside, um, but the baptized are the chosen. Yes. Um, the language comes from the people of Israel yeah. in the Hebrew Bible, really. That's where this idea of chosen, or in my sermon I talk about chosenness, is utilized. And I think it's helpful. I mean, we can talk about more of the details now on the podcast, but it's helpful to realize that why did God choose Israel? Was it because God was choosing them to pick them out of the rest of the human race and say, hey, you're especially important. You're more important than anyone else that I've ever created. These people are it. No, if you really look close at the story of the Hebrew scripture, God says that God chooses these people to be more or less an example to everyone else about this is what it means to live our life in a holy way in relationship with God. Um, and so in a very real sense, um, to claim one's chosenness is to claim, hey, I'm a child of God. I'm called to live my life in this way. And guess what? Everyone, in a sense, is a child of God too. I'm just trying to live my life in a way to remind people who they are. So all that goes behind that language of chosenness. And so um, maybe a simple way to think about it is, the fact that we are created and we exist, even now at this moment, suggests that God's already chosen us. God is choosing right now to breathe us into existence. If God decided on the count of three to say, hey, I'm going to stop loving you, we would disappear. Right. And so what 
this idea of chosenness does in connection with baptism is it's this identity thing again. Yeah, the um, the Hebrew people were chosen for a vocation. They were chosen for a reason. They were chosen to be a, a light to the nations. And just like us, we can get selfish with those blessings and we can get selfish with our chosenness and we can start putting up boundaries and we're more chosen than you because we believe the right things. You know, they struggled with that as well and tried to keep it to themselves. And they had to be taught that, you know what, guy, it, you're chosen for a reason. You're chosen to, uh, again, be a, be a light to the nations and, and so are we. Yeah, uh, if you look close to the story of Jesus, he confronts this head on. This I this it's really this spiritual pride. And it's not just isolated to the Hebrew people and the Jewish people. It's I would say it's more prevalent in Christianity today. It's in so much of Christianity today when it's being presented in an exclusive way where it's us versus them, that inevitably leads to spiritual pride <laughs> and there's just no way around it but anyway back to jesus real quick um, uh, he basically says to his own people hey don't just say that abraham's your father right right that's not it no what what god really wants is is a transformation of of a way of life that is about a, mo- a life motivated by god's presence and god's spirit that's what chosenness is really all about this next part was really, um, I really thought about it. Um, you said that the greatest enemy to owning this chosenness is our own self-rejection. And, and we try to find acceptance, uh, that, that sort of chosenness by, you know, buying stuff and going places and doing things. But we have to stop and realize that baptism washes all that away. We're already, we're already chosen. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's the great spiritual enemy. Self-rejection is a great spiritual enemy because it seems like it leads to burnout in, in the spiritual journey. And what I mean by that is um, you, a person, if they're not careful, you, you begin to, to read the books, you go to the services, you listen to the sermons, you digest, 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 in hopes that it would make you feel different in hopes that you'll find the inner peace that you think you're longing for and looking for. And so after a few years of that, if you even make it that long, you just finally throw your hands up and say, hey, what's the use? Um, And the tragedy is you've gone through this whole journey and you never really felt at home. You never really felt like you belonged. You always thought you were searching for something else. And what this idea of chosenness does, though, is it kind of, like you said, it washes away all that and says, look, no matter how you feel, no matter really what you think, no matter what questions or doubts you may have, you're loved by God. You can't change it. it. It's who you are. And once you can stand on that solid ground, you then have, in my opinion, you really have something to build on when it comes to your walk with, with, uh, with Christ. And there's a catch to that, though, uh, you said. You said that um, if we're chosen and we finally come around to uh, owning the fact that we're chosen, we have to realize at the same time they are chosen. Now it gets more difficult. Yeah. Um, well, it, there's an edge. It's like a two-edged sword, I guess, in yeah. a sense. Um, uh, God has chosen to breathe you into existence, whoever you may be. Uh, as a baptized person, you claim that idea. But then you start to realize, look, God's love showers down on all of creation. We're all 
connected in that presence that has breathed in us the very waters of life. We're all connected in that presence. And therefore, to live out this journey of the baptized life now means I take responsibility. Um, I have to care about the suffering of others. And I know that might sound a little bit mystical or complicated, but just look at Jesus' life again. He constantly was open to the suffering of other people, always healing, always reaching out, always welcoming. Um, and, and if he's the model, and I think he is, of what the baptized life is meant to look like, then we have to take responsibility for the suffering of others, even if it means we have to we go to places we would soon not go. And you refer to that great story where Jesus restores Peter after Jesus had denied him. And um, he said to him three times, you know, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. Yeah, it's such a beautiful story. That's a moment of redemption in Peter's life, of course, because it's symbolic of his denial of Christ three times earlier on. And, and you know, as Jesus is being arrested and then crucified. Jesus, Peter denies Jesus, and then Jesus comes back and invites him to try again, really. And, and I mean, that's, that's really, it's just so beautiful what happens to us. We drop the ball so many times, and what happens? Jesus comes back and says, hey, look, I'm still with you. Number one, you're chosen. Number two, if you love me, then care for these people. Care for these people. If you want to know what God is up to, Really, to say it simply, if you really want to, if you really care, if you actually are real about it, um, authentic about it, if you if you're really there, then you'll you'll notice what the people are doing in your life. You'll care about the people that God brings in your life, and you'll respond to their needs as they come about. Yeah, and you drove the point home about our responsibility by a story that you came across in your sermon preparation having to do with a woman who back in the 1960s was stabbed to death and how the people that witnessed that responded. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I've since learned that there's a little controversy around this particular story oh. I, I found. I, you know, so goes the it news. Happens. <laughs> so goes the news. But it, right. it does convey the, the point that um, – if someone witnessed the murder of someone else and did not do anything about it, are they responsible? Mm -hmm. And I think most people would say, yeah, in a sense, they are kind of responsible for not trying to help that or stop that from happening. And uh, of course, as Christians who believe in baptism, the, the water of God's presence that connects us all, of course, we would say that um, we are responsible. And if we don't respond to the needs of someone else that's right in front of us, in a very real sense, that's a resistance to the grace of our baptisms. So you said then start loving in, in little ways. Maybe you'll never witness someone in such a serious situation that they're being murdered, but there are other opportunities to respond in little ways. Yeah, and and loving in little ways is about you make the connection back to the beginning of this sermon um, or this podcast really in this sense. Um you make the connection. Look, my my life, my deepest meaning is connected to God's life and God's story. In light of that, I'm going to live my part my part in this narrative, and I'm going to love the people and the things that happen in my life. I'm going to even do it in little ways where 
want to do it for the sake of the love of God. I want to do it for the sake of the love of God. I'm going to do it with a sense of a connection with the world around me. And when we start to live our lives in that way, I mean, I don't want to scare any of the listeners here. We're on the road to becoming a saint. Because that's what saints do. Basically, they've learned to love in little ways, and those little ways grow over time. And then um, they really never tried to get noticed, and all of a sudden people notice them because of the way they live their life with such humility and, and such grace. Yeah, and you close by saying, remember your baptism and be thankful. And then you had our people come forward um, to the water of, of baptism and to take some of the water and to put it on their forehead and, 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 and remember their baptism. And then this week, they'll have a chance to live that out too, as you talk about the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion or, or the Eucharist, um, because it's the first Sunday of the month and that's when we celebrate communion. So Article 18, as we get you all ready for this Sunday, Article 18 is of the Lord's Supper. I'll read the description here. The Supper of the Lord is not only a sign of the love that Christians ought to have among themselves one to another, but rather is a sacrament of our redemption by Christ's death, in so much that to such as rightly, worthily, and with faith receive the same, the bread which we break is a partaking of the body of Christ, and likewise the cup of blessing is a partaking of the blood of Christ." Transubstantiation or the change of the substance of bread and wine in the supper of our Lord cannot be proved by holy writ, but is repugnant to the plain words of Scripture, overthroweth the nature of a sacrament, and hath given occasion to many superstitions. The body of Christ is given, taken, and eaten in the supper only after a heavenly and spiritual manner, and the mean whereby the body of Christ is received and eaten in the supper is faith. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper was not by Christ's ordinance reserved, carried about, lifted up, or worshipped. And again, as we mentioned in the beginning, we were somewhat, or at least we took note of the fact that under the article in baptism, it realizes, or it, it states that, hey, we're going to keep infant baptism, but here it's right back to going head on uh, against uh, Catholicism, where it gets into this argument about transubstantiation. But what I find interesting about the Methodist understanding is that Christ really is present, even if the elements don't become blood and 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 a body. In some way, Christ is present. So there's really no difference. There's not a lot of difference. <laughs> I mean, I, this is just one of those unfortunate statements that were made that was made. 500 years ago, and they were the person who wrote this. And then really the person who wrote this was just going, I, I don't know, they were just going a little far with explaining why they were not Catholic. They were, they yeah. were fond of the word repugnant. Repugnant <laughs> is such a, that's just not a good word. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But um, so, yeah, this, this is a central, but it's a central act of worship for Christians, no matter if you're Roman Catholic, Methodist, or whatever, or Baptist, or non-denomination, really. Holy Communion is the centerpiece of Christian worship, and it goes all the way back to the earliest of Christians. Um, and so this Sunday, I will talk about some of the biblical stories of communion, how it's how it again developed in Christian tradition. But but really, what I I'm really hoping I have enough time to do is talk about how communion is like bread for the journey. It's it's where you. Open yourselves to God's presence in such a way that you enter the process process of really becoming 
what we already are. We become what we already are. And so while we only baptize once, there's no need to redo it, communion's offered again and again because it is there as a reminder and also as a means of grace uh, to enter into that connection with God's love and presence in a tangible way. Yeah, Wesley's, one of his sermons I really love is the, the duty of constant communion. And of course, once a month communion is a sort of a late development and had to do with a lot of things. But uh, of course, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters uh, commune every week. They don't really have a service without communion. And uh, Wesley uh, took communion sometimes daily and just recommended that we that we take it often. In fact, in my last appointment, I was so uh, convinced by that argument that we started uh, doing communion every week. And I have to admit that I loved it, but I have to admit uh, on a practical level, I, I really wasn't thinking about all of the preparation that goes into doing it every week. I don't buy the argument that it loses its special nature if you do it every week, which is one of the arguments that you get. But when I uh, left there, they went back to weekly and I realized, you know, maybe I was Maybe I was asking too much too soon, but as a principle, I love it a lot. Yes. If nothing else, the sermon can be horrible. You can sing out of tune, you know, you don't get anything out of it, but you go forward and you, you taste, you eat yeah. the bread of heaven, the cup of salvation, and you connect with the love of God in a very tangible way. I, I mean, I, I resonate a little bit with what the Catholics do in terms yeah. of the Mass. And and some other traditions within Christianity have weekly communion as well. Um, Wesley himself, I learned this in developing the sermon, I think he averaged uh, receiving the sacrament four to five times a week throughout his life. Now stop and think about that. This guy's going to church, not weekly. He's going almost daily yeah. on average throughout his life and receiving the sacrament because he believed in it so strongly and had a sense that uh, that's how he that's how he dialed in to the Holy Spirit's work in his life. Let's wrap this up by just talking about the first week in Advent because we are in that season and and just briefly as we tie it to Holy Communion as we tie it to these twenty five articles. Where where are we here in, here in the Christian year and the Advent season? A lot of times we can get caught up in the idea that Advent is preparation for Christmas. That's really not what it is. No, no. the The word Advent Adventus uh, means the coming, or as I referenced earlier, it's about the appearing. And in a lot of ways, it has to do with uh, what we kind of talked about on the Reign of Christ Sunday. Like we're longing for the appearing of Christ in such a way where the things on earth ultimately and finally become as they are in heaven. And of course, there's something bigger going on than the birth of a baby boy um, when we're talking about Advent in this way. Um, with that said, um, for me, Advent is like, I need to make room for Christ to appear in my life, just on a very basic level. And I live with the realization that as I make room for Christ to appear in my life, I experience what the candles are all about, a sense of love and joy and peace and and really presence. The center candle is about Christ, presence to the presence 
of God, the light of God's presence. I, I, that's where I'm at with it, Randy. What do yeah. you think? Yeah, um, I, I've really come to appreciate the season. I come from a, a, a non-liturgical background. We did not observe Advent, and so uh, wasn't even aware of it. And then just Christmas just happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like a lot of things, um, uh, they get melded together. The Christian traditions and the popular traditions get melded together. And you can kind of run these battles in terms of when do you put up the Christmas tree in the church or do you even put up the Christmas tree? And uh, when do we start singing uh, Christmas carols? There it uh, is. Yeah, well, that's the controversy, really. <laughs> Every year is like, it's Christmas. Why aren't we singing Christmas songs? And I, as a pastor, I'm be like, well, it's Advent. <laughs> right. It's not technically Christmas until, guess what? It's Christmas. And and so right. uh, the Advent songs are are wonderful theologically. Um, I would encourage any of our listeners to to check out the lyrics to um, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. That's a Charles Wesley song uh, that we sing every Advent. It's actually one of my favorite yeah. just songs that we sing this time of year. Um, we compromised. You know, we um, I said, we're not going to sing Christmas yeah. uh, songs on the first Sunday in Advent. Maybe not the second Sunday yeah. in Advent. You can have them on the third Sunday in Advent. But people do. I mean, it talks about the power of the culture and the power of the tradition. People want to sing those Christmas carols. And so as a pastoral move, you do it. Yeah, I. You always have to compromise a bit. Yeah, and I'm like you. You kind of you start off this first Sunday singing more the the Advent songs, and you kind of slowly add in uh, the carols because if you're not careful, you'll go through Christmas and not be able to sing some of folks right. people's favorite songs, and and that's how they do. We do. I'm I'm I want to include myself in this. That's how we do experience Christ's presence during yes. this time of year very much so right um power of a song, the song always the, the tree santa claus oh, i mean the whole the whole thing is it's it's charged <laughs> with the sacred meaning right. it really is um mm-hmm. you know of course santa people all get up in arms about that well that goes back to saint nicholas who's yeah. a christian bishop i mean come on folks it's okay <laughs> you know uh, I, I would be the first to admit that maybe we've gotten a little off track here, but um, culturally, but even then, uh, there's something about this season that calls out what's best about us. And one of my favorite authors, uh, Chris, uh, Richard Rohr, talks about how um, as a boy, he experienced kind of an conversion experience sitting under a Christmas tree. And then as an adult, he realized, look, all the trees glow. Just like the Christmas tree did, all the trees glow and all the earth is filled with God's glory. That's the Christian life. That's the appearing of Christ. That's it. That's it. There we go. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, We appreciate it so much. Uh, Send in a question if you've got one. We'd love to answer your questions or if there's a topic you'd like us to tackle, uh, let us know. And if you want to join us here at Methodist Temple, we'd love to see you either in person or online. But if that's not the case, maybe you have your own church home. That's great. Um, We appreciate your listening to the podcast. And so thanks again. And we'll do this again next week. This has been the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. You are welcome to join us at Methodist Temple in person or online. Methodist Temple is at 2109 Lincoln Avenue in Evansville, Indiana. Our traditional Sunday morning worship service is at 830 with our contemporary service at 11. Log on to our website at methodisttemple.church. We see Christ in you.